0: it is strange to preach to a virtually empty room. Um, so I'm just imagining that you're in your living rooms with your phone or airplane, this on TV or however you're looking at it. And we're tuning in together to God's word. I'm trying to imagine that because this is not church. Definitionally, church is an assembly. We're to be together. And so we can't be together in person. And so th- This is this is an opportunity to have a service by which we're fed spiritual content with an eye to relevancy in our setting. Uh, hopefully, as a pastor, I know those of you that care enough to tune in here better than just any old preacher anywhere, anytime. Even if someone else could preach a sermon that was that had more zip and zap to it. The idea is, is that I would be preaching something to a particular people as a called out shepherd of a certain flock that would be relevant, not because it's novel and new, but because it's old and it's true. And I would be preaching to you in a way that was sensitive because the Bible tells us again and again that we are to know the condition of the flock. Know the condition of the flock. And so that's what my hope is in doing this. I could point you to just any old sermon anywhere that would probably be helpful to you, but I'm wanting to give a word on August the 5th, 2020, on Palm Sunday, to a specific group of people. And so that's my hope today as we look at an old, old story in a fresh and a new way. A quick sidebar. Kostenberger and Taylor wrote a book, The Final Days of Jesus. And I'm doing morning devotions this week that's following the final days of Jesus, Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday. So I'd love for you to tune in for that. I'm borrowing some material from them, The Final Days of Jesus. Excellent book, but it's a big book. And so I just want to follow the gospel of Matthew with you, eight chapters, eight days this week, and try to make this accessible and nurture your devotional life. And so that's that's my hope, and we've got the outline for that study on our Facebook page, and I hope you'll take advantage of that. We also have... On our Facebook page, an e-Bulletin. And if you are looking at that e-Bulletin, you come to the point where you get to the sermon. And I'm going to flip there now myself in my e-Bulletin. And the sermon says, The King in Me, Matthew 21, 1 to 11. So I'm going to turn there in my Bible. And while you're trying to find your place in your Bible to turn to Matthew 21, I'm going to say a few things about the text. Uh, they say three words. There's a three-word phrase they say: Familiarity breeds contempt. Are you familiar with it? familiarity breeds contempt. And that becomes a problem for us because this is the one place where we cannot allow that to happen. We probably shouldn't allow it to happen in many covenantal aspects of our lives, probably shouldn't let it happen in contractual aspects of our lives where we don't need the familiar to breed contempt. But the reality is in a Genesis 3 fallen world in our fallen human condition, familiarity can breed contempt. It can cause us to have contempt for that which is just always around, always available. And we can think it's always gonna be as it always has been. That's one thing that the COVID-19 crisis has probably sobered us up from, is the drunken stupor that makes us think that things will always be as they always have been. 2 Peter 3, 4 tells us that that's how the unbelievers act. Things will always be as they always have been. And the fact of the matter is, as people of faith... We know, rooted in history, that history is going somewhere, that history is His story. And where it is going is in His control by His divine providence and His love for His people. And so we shouldn't live with the false pretense that things are just going to go on as they've always gone on and on and on. And this season causes us to be able to reflect afresh, especially because of what's going on in the world right now. We can reflect afresh on an old story that has true value for us today. It has eternal value and eternal meaning. It is the most unique story and the most unique week in the history of the world. And we need to not let familiarity breed contempt. Alistair Begg said once, "...the task of the pastor is not to inform you of something you didn't know, but to remind you of something you mustn't forget." I must remind you of something you mustn't forget. It's not that you don't know about the waving of palm branches and the exuberance of Palm Sunday, but I want to remind you of something you can't forget, and that is the meaning of this holy week. We need to get caught up in the fervor of singing Hosanna again and again and realize that only one man then and only one man now really controls the events and really sees precisely how these things are headed and rolling out, and that is the sun. In obedience to the Father. No man knoweth the hour of the day of the Lord. And so that day we must be prepared for and keeping watch for, even though we don't know when it is going to come. I want to read to you something by Dustin Brown. He posted this on Facebook some years back, and it's something that's encouraged me, and I think it fits in this sermon today. It says, Maybe you have heard the Palm Story Sunday dozens of times. It's likely you have if you're here listening to this sermon. And perhaps you've heard the Easter story dozens of times as well. But you need to hear the biblical narrative with fresh eyes and fresh ears because it has serious implications for our daily life. The people were trying to make Jesus into something he was not. How were they doing that, trying to make him into something he was not? He says it like this. He says, the Jews of his day wanted to make a political savior. Maybe you're like this. You will turn our country around. Perhaps you want... A health and wealth savior. You want a God who will give you a healthy, safe, comfortable life, a good job and money, three kids, a dog, and a white picket fence. Do you find yourself getting frustrated when life isn't going easy and leisurely the way that you think it should? Maybe you're looking for a political or a health and wealth comfort savior. There's a third kind of savior that Brown writes about. He says, it's a get me out of hell savior, but don't really change my life. We just want Jesus to save us from hell but leave our lives unchanged because we don't want to give up anything. We want the benefits from God without actually wanting God himself. The problem with all three of these saviors, all three of these saviors, is that they don't exist. They sure don't save. Palm Sunday begs us to do heart searching because there's only one true savior. Jesus is king, and he isn't just king over one area of our lives. He's king over all of life. He's lord of all. To be our Savior, we must surrender every sin in our life to Jesus. We must surrender every aspect of our lives to his lordship, whether it's our work, our school, our, our sexual lives, our relationships, home, family, free time, hobbies, possessions, our very views of the world and orientation. Surrender to Jesus. That's what it means for a king to own your life. Jesus, the king of your life, is he? And that's what today is about. Don't look to a Savior to save you from all your sin and change every every area of aspect of your life and then withhold jesus is the king that ascended in jerusalem on a donkey and didn't stop there he journeyed through trials with the jewish and roman authorities skin tore off his body while he was whipped hands and feet nailed to a cross while a physical torment was terrible the spiritual torment was bad too he bore our sins and the consequence of god's wrath for him and three days later he rose from the dead that's the gospel and we want to refresh the gospel in our lives not just for the punchline but for each leading into it. And so familiarity will not breed contempt as the Spirit of God is in us and guiding us to see it afresh and anew. And so let's consider now the verses for today. Matthew 21, 1-11 through 11, with fresh eyes. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, You shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. I want to take this sermon today, this text rather, and consider in this sermon how Jesus considers himself to be the Savior of the world how Jesus initiates salvation for the less faithful, and how Jesus the Messiah makes you finally faithful. And so if you'd like to take notes at home, if you're able to do it between kids that are running around in the busy living room, there are three points from this text I want to draw out. The first one is how Jesus considers himself the Savior of the world. The second one is how Jesus initiates salvation for the less faithful. And the third one is how Jesus the Messiah makes you finally faithful. And what I believe is, is if you will apply the sermon to life in the I believe you'll have greater assurance of eternal life and greater purpose for how you live your life in the here and now, this very week, this very year, even in the midst of a crisis like this. So first, let's consider how Jesus considers himself the savior of the world. Look at verse three of our text. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Jesus is self Identifying as the Lord, the Apostle Matthew, the Apostles in Matthew, are recording the events of Jesus's life after his death, burial, and resurrection, and reflecting on the final days of Jesus. And they are saying that he self-attested to being Lord. What that means is, is that we can, we as C.S. Lewis famously said, we can consider Jesus Lord or lunatic, absolutely crazy, but just considering him as a good teacher among many doesn't take his argument on his own terms. Jesus said he was Lord. His claim here is to be the Messiah. He has authority over Jerusalem and all the religion that it represents. He is looking down from the Mount of Olives on his city and he is riding in and he is riding in to rescue his people just in in a way we would have never written the story to go. And he rides in on a donkey mirroring the coronation of King Solomon, as we read about earlier in this service. He's writing in, mirroring what we would expect a great and final Davidic king, King David's heir, to come in and to write in on. He's he's claiming to be somebody as Lord, divine, Messiah, king. He's making these statements to the people. And he's doing it by virtue of his actions. These actions are communicating that he is Lord, but he's also doing it by virtue of his words. He's saying, I'm the Lord. The Lord needs these things. He needs the mama and the colt. He needs to ride in. This is what this is supposed to look like. And so Jesus identifies as the Messiah. He's long expected and awaited. And I want to call you today to a theological worldview, to a a God-centered worldview, where all the aspects of your life Circle around and connect to interdisciplinary God, for God to be at the center, and the God Man Himself, Jesus Christ, to be your Lord. As C.S. Lewis famously said, "Declare Him lunatic or declare Him Lord." But get out of here with all that. He's just a teacher talk. What we've found that have followed Jesus is we found, as the Psalter says, that we can't trust in chariots and horses. We can't trust in governments and transportations. We can't trust in eternal health and wealth. We can't trust in a political savior. We cannot trust in saviors that don't save at all. We trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who showed us the way of the cross and took the initiative for our salvation. This text calls us to lean into God as more in control of history today than the prince of this age for sure, Satan, and way more in control than the governing rulers like the Romans or the nominal religious rulers that were in bed with them in the first century. I mean, that's what was going on, really. These religious priests were afraid of losing their power. They had snuggled up to the Roman Empire. They were benefiting from the coercive power of the state. And I'm not trying to create some sort of an anarchist sermon here, like we should say all governing authorities are bad always and forever. But we should realize that they don't save. They're good for their intended purpose. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 tells us that the governing authorities are there indeed to restrain human evil they're there by god's design for our good at least at their best and legitimate governing authorities not to be rebelled against unwantedly by us as citizens and people however we can't trust in chariots and horses any more than the salt of the people in times the psalm was written were tempted to we can't trust in the governing authorities and in war to keep us at peace our peace comes holistically through the way of the cross and jesus is saying I want to be the center of your life. And I I don't want you to trust in man and in the amassment of power. We don't trust in the amassment of power from the Vatican or from big evangelicalism. We trust not in the amassment of power, but we trust in the gospel that says we are strong when we are weak. Strength through weakness. That's what Jesus modeled for us. We're called to follow in the way of the cross. But I'm sure that you, like me, are feeling less than faithful to live out this God-focused orientation. So our second point after Jesus considers himself the savior of the world is how Jesus initiates salvation for me and you when we have been in our less than faithful. I think about the metaphor of those that run in races on tracks. I'm not that fast and it's not my sport of choice, but I know that they kind of line up in such a way that whenever the gun goes off, they take off and they run and they run around the track, and there's people cheering, and somebody comes around, and somebody comes around, it looks like somebody's going to win, and maybe somebody else comes into in front of them, and they're back and forth, and they're jogging back and forth, and finally somebody wins the race. I want you to consider what happens when somebody false starts. It's this great letdown, right? It's like, the gun goes off, somebody false starts, they have to all come back. It's like, I mean, you can pull a hamstring, how many times you take taken off, and you're taking off, and you're taking off. And I want to say to you this morning that or whenever you're listening to this, I want to say to you very simply that we all in our fallen human condition have had false starts with our faith and practice. I think some of us have tender consciences where the enemy wants to accuse us and harass us just based on the fact that we didn't get it perfectly right the first time. I want you to understand afresh and anew this morning that Jesus doesn't expect you to get it perfectly right His atonement for your sin was designed to cover for every sin that you in the past and the present and the future would commit. The Bible says in Romans 5.8 that while we were yet caught up in our sin, Christ died for us. He died for you. Certainly, chronologically, he died before you sinned, right? He died before you were born. But he died in the sense of for all time, for all people, that his sacrifice in substitution for you, taking your place on the cross, was enough to cover all of your sins, even your fits and your starts and your false starts. Now, I'm not advocating at all whatsoever that you should sin more, that grace may abound more. The Bible clearly teaches us against that. We wanna fight sin at every single turn. I just am trying to console the consciences that have gotten the Jesus wrong of Palm Sunday the same way that the crowds got him wrong. They wanted a Savior, but they didn't understand what kind of a Savior they needed. They wanted a Savior, but they thought that they wanted a political Savior or a, a health and wealth and comfort Savior. They thought that they wanted a Savior that would keep them from all pain and all wrongs and wouldn't necessarily touch into the crevices of their private lives and how they lived because they didn't understand how far the sin was found in their lives, how cursed they were because of the sins of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so they didn't realize the depths and how far the saving work of Jesus Christ the Lord would have to go in order to rectify that wrong. Maybe you've missed that too. And so this fresh look is not to breed contempt. Our familiarity with this story is to breed obedience, it's to breed discipleship, because that's where the joy is. That's where the assurance is. That's where the purposeful living is. It's not what Jesus wants from you. It's what he wants for you. He rode in on that donkey to give you salvation, not to take from you. We have an extremely philanthropic Heavenly Father that made a plan from the foundations of the world to redeem for himself a people. And that people, if you have faith, includes you. So fail forward in Jesus. Don't put faith in yourself. Put faith in your Messiah. And say, Matt, how are you getting this from this? text. Look at it with me again at verse 6. After the prophet Zechariah is evoked with Jesus riding in on this donkey, the disciples had gone to get the donkey, so they knew that they were looking for at least a political savior, if not some kind of a spiritual savior. They're looking for, for David's greater heir here. They'd heard his teaching, seen his healing, and his disciples went and they did Here, verse 6 says, how'd they do? As Jesus had directed them. And then they turn around after they did What, as Jesus had directed them, and just a couple days later, when the crisis comes, the sheep scatter. They struck the shepherd, and the sheep scattered. After the the scattering, we want them to return, like, like Peter did, but consider the scattering. The disciples then didn't do as the Lord Jesus directed them, they didn't understand the anointing of Jesus. They didn't grasp the Passover meal as the Last Supper. They couldn't stay awake when the hour of betrayal was at hand. They didn't stay close to defend Jesus during his trials. They they didn't carry his cross for him. They didn't comfort him in his greatest hour. They kept Jesus at a distance because they didn't understand what kind of Savior he was to be if he was to save them at all. They sang Hosanna, and they didn't understand its meaning. And maybe you haven't either. You've followed with false starts on the starting line of the faith track of The spiritual life. You've misunderstood. You've not grasped the Lord's Supper in church membership. You you haven't stayed awake. You've slept when you should have been on watch. You've not defended Jesus when your peers put him on proverbial trial. Maybe you've been glib with Passion Week. And like me, you've been little comfort to Jesus' followers who he feels deeply with. But Jesus knew this when he rode in on that donkey. It's all baked into the cake of his salvation. He knew you'd fail and you'd fail again. And that doesn't mean that you should go on sinning. I'm not saying that. This is not a sermon of lawlessness or of cheap grace. I'm just saying that this text afresh to me means that his grace is promised to save me when I've yet had false starts. My faith is not in me. My faith is in him and him holding me fast. No one was expected to get it and do as Jesus directed as early and as often as what we would like. It would take time. Jesus is the initiator for these that need to fail forward. He acted as the groom long before the bride responded as directed. This is God's gracious sovereignty for you. The cross is where we see Jesus both as good and as just. Gracious and as true. He is. He forgives by what he gives, and that being himself. He gave his life for mine. There's no cheap acquittal here. Jesus paid it all. We sing it because we mean it. And he knew exactly what he was riding into on that donkey in 33 A.D. And you're invited to follow him even now. Nobody understands the final days of Jesus perfectly the first time through. That's why you journey there year after year during Holy Week. That's why the church takes us back through this journey. We do it every single Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection. But we do it particularly and chronologically during Palm Sunday and what we call Easter Sunday now. So you get to remember with a kind of familiarity that breeds cheer, not contempt. And as we remember, we realize that one day we're going to see him face to face. I want you to long for it. I want you to freshen up this story in your life, and I want you to taste afresh and see that the Lord is good. Listen to how Gary Millar preached about Passion Week. He said this, Place this man beside any of us, and he stands out in blazing purity. The sweetest baby is exposed as a ball of snarling selfishness. The greatest humanitarian suddenly appears as a bundle of self-interest. Our grasping, our self-serving, shameful, blackened hearts only serves to illuminate his perfect innocence. And aren't you glad he came? Aren't you so glad he came? At last, here is a man that you can count on, a man you can be proud of. Here's a man you can look up to, a hero who's truly worth having. Here's a man whom there's no pride, in whom there's no lies, there's no trickery, there's no spin, there's no wishful thinking, there's no dirty secrets, just innocence and holiness and God-likeness, a man who is so brimming with selfless love that he dies for us at the hands of people like us. The contrast between his innocence and our wickedness is so incredibly stark and so morally confounding. It's exposing, isn't it? It leaves us vulnerable. Really, how could we take this innocent God-man for granted? At the heart of Jesus' prayer... On the cross, Father, if you're willing, or before the cross, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This unfathomable act of submission flows from a flawless trust in the Father. It's a bare trust. This innocent man, even as those around him rage and conspire, this innocent man is still in complete control of his actions. He's also the man who perfectly trusts God perfectly, flawlessly, unremittingly, even as he is the God-man. Even as he faces the wrath of the Father, there is no moment like this in all of history. There's no one else like this in all of history. There's no one else worthy of our worship and our praise and our trust, and there is no one else who can trust for you. Have you ever thought about it that way? Your situation is so hopeless, you actually needed someone to trust God For you. That's what Jesus did. That's the kind of savior he is. He trusted God for you. In your place condemned he stood. And so Jesus considered himself to be this kind of savior. And Jesus initiated salvation for the less faithful, for those of us that have had fits and starts along the way and that need a fresh look at his passion in Holy Week. And thirdly and finally... Perhaps most importantly, let's see how Jesus the Messiah makes you finally faithful. He is faithful and he will do it. How does Jesus the Messiah make you finally faithful? following is about how you finish even more than how you start. Let's think about Matthew's context just a little bit. If you look in your Bible, if you have a print Bible open, Matthew chapter 19 ends with the parable of the rich young ruler. Jesus teaches us through that. Well, the, the conclusion is says it all. It says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. They they say in verse 25 of chapter 19, astonishingly, if the rich young ruler can't be saved, who in the world is going to get saved? What kind of savior are you? And he says, well, with man, these things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So, so really, nobody can be good enough to be saved. That's the parable of the rich young ruler. And then he punchlines that parable, seemingly awkward, with the first will be last and the last will be first. The prideful people will be brought down, and the people that, that are down will be brought up. It's this role reversal that Luke makes famous in his gospel too. And so then going to Matthew 20, these this is the chapters leading into the, what we consider the last week of Jesus, the final days of Jesus, what we talk about that way, what is. And it, he tells a a parable he teaches on the laborers in the vineyard. And I'll just skip to the punchline in Matthew chapter 20 because what happens there is he says the last will be first and the first last. What's he getting at? The people that came to work for this boss later in the day got the same day wage as the people that were working from the start of the day. And you say, that's not fair. How, How in the world can a boss that's fair give somebody that worked one hour the same reward as somebody that worked 10. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The thief on the cross who actually reviled Jesus on the cross as he hung up next to him, asks the Lord to let him be with him in his kingdom. He humbles himself, he repents, and he says, Jesus, I want to be yours. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. No time for baptismal waters. No time even for the fits and starts that I've been talking about. He says, you're with me. And I just want to say to you, unbeliever, today, it's just that simple to start. It's just that simple to start. You with me, Jesus says. You deserve to hang up on the cross. I didn't. Today you'll be with me in paradise. When you die, you're with me. It's as simple as trusting in Jesus. It's so profound it doesn't stay. With trusting in Jesus and 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 no joy in life and assurance and purposeful living, but it does start that way. And I want you to know that even if you're coming into this thing in the eleventh hour of your life, like the thief on the cross, that just like these parables say, if you come into the the work of the kingdom late in the eleventh hour, I want you to know that you have the same salvation by the same Savior as somebody who from a relatively young age has walked with Jesus. I want to tell you something about those of us that follow Jesus from a relatively young age is it's easy for us to lose sight of how much mercy we've been shown and how much we need a merciful Savior and how much we're not doing it for ourselves. It is great to follow Jesus for your whole life with joy. It's not great to become smugly self-righteous. It's not great to think that somehow we're saving ourselves with a little Jesus sprinkled on top. You are just as much in need of this salvation as the 11th hour believer. Jesus, it's not so much acquittal. What's going on here is Jesus is is serving your time for you, even if you were saved in the first hour, relatively speaking, of your life. He's serving your time for you. That's the purpose of Passion Week. And he not only is serving your time for you, but he is the one that makes you finally faithful. So when we read Matthew 20, we see that day that day laborer story. And then Jesus foretells his death for a third time. But even Jesus' closest uh, followers of the time didn't get the breadth of what kind of savior he would be. I mean, they all abandoned him, strike the shepherd, the sheep scatter. And then the mother of the three most famous disciples, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, and just making this point up there for us in the ordering of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, the mother comes in and she says, hey, uh, In this new aristocracy that's going to overthrow the Sanhedrin when the Pharisees and the Sadducees aren't in control and they're not snuggled up with the Roman governance anymore. Uh, In this this Davidic kingdom with a little d that you're ushering in, can my sons have nice positions of authority in that new kingdom that you're ushering in? So, So the mom doesn't get it. The kids don't get it. The crowds don't get it. Certainly the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees don't get it. Nobody gets it. You're in great company. The question is, Do you get the humbly that Jesus rode in on the cross? Because you come to this Jesus that rode rode in on a donkey, rather, on the road to the cross. The Palm Sunday riding in on a donkey is modified humbly. He humbly rides in. Look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 5. Behold, your king is coming to you, mounted on a donkey, humble and mounted on a donkey. That, that That is the real accent mark for us, I think, is Humility. Jesus humbled himself when he didn't have to so that you could humble yourself when you have to. You have to humble yourself. Your salvation is not coming on Air Force One. It's not coming from the the latest diet fad or better healthy living. It's not not coming from your ability to live a little bit more moral life while still keeping your hidden sins hidden and secret and in the private crevices of your life. What Jesus does is say you to the uttermost and he's asking for the whole thing because he gave you the whole thing. That's what this is about. So if you've blown it, we've all blown it. It's not our good thing with little Jesus on top. It's he is Lord of all or not at all. He is, he's in for the whole thing and he went all in. This Holy Week is about him coming all in. And you think, well, I'm just insignificant. What difference does it make? There was a pastor that wrote this on Facebook a couple of years ago. He said, on the last day, you will be surprised by how different God evaluates things than you do. Heaven will be filled with many no-name saints who humbly served behind the scenes. They had no books written about them, but the Lord's book is full of their deeds done in secret. I love the way that Michael Horton writes about this subject in his book, Ordinary. He says, we need to find contentment in our king. Right? They're saying, Hosanna, here's King Jesus. And Horton says we need to find contentment in our king. This is how he says it. Psalm says that the, Lord, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We are not self-made, and ultimately, I do not own anything. God owns it all, and he gives it as he pleases. We become content with our king as I, as we grow in our understanding of who has adopted us as co-heirs because we are, un, we are united to his only son, Our father is not a stingy monarch, and his generous gift-giving never depletes his storehouse. So you do not need to jockey for his favor or for his gifts, especially when you recall Holy Week and Golgotha. You never have to question whether he is disposed toward your good. You begin to rest in him and confide in him during life's storms when you come to know that he has chosen you, redeemed you, justified you, adopted you and that he is sanctifying you by his spirit until you one day are glorified in Christ at his return. So what does it mean to be content? That is, content with God's provision as your king. It means that you and I are safely hidden with Christ and God through faith in this gospel. You are opened up to others around you. First, the fellow members, and then your other neighbors too. Instead of seeing those other people as threats, you see them as fellow guests at God's table instead. No longer do you see those other people as competitors for commodities in a world of scarce resources. You see them as co-shares with you in the circulation of gifts that flows outward from its source without running out. After all, that source is God the Father, in the sun by the spirit. Well if you've viewed people more like competitors for commodities this refreshment this this uber familiarity with this story it's going to bring cheer to your life because you're going to see them as co-heirs with Jesus and you're going to see the circulation of gifts that are flowing outward from this source as unlimited. You're not competitors for commodities in a world of scarce resources friends. Jesus is making you finally faithful, and he's making them finally faithful too, and we are going to form into his church in kingdom come as the pure bride that worships the bridegroom that bought our salvation. Now, I just want to pause for just a moment, and I I want to say to some of you that are struggling with marriage out there, uh, perhaps you struggle with the idea of marriage because you want to have a marriage, and you don't and I want you to know that Jesus is enough. Both Jesus and Paul were single, and he's enough. There are others of you out there that have, have wandered into marriage, but you feel that you've false started along the way, and you're just convinced that you're in the wrong marriage. And I want to say to you that there are certainly times of abuse and abandonment where you need the special counsel of the elders of the church to help you through what does it mean to be faithful to Jesus at a time when my spouse has been utterly unfaithful. And that's true, but I don't want to talk about that right now. Because the overwhelming need, probably to the 90th percentile that we have, is for us to see the economy of God, like Ephesians 5 and 6 says, with Jesus as the groom and the church of the bride, and see the covenant relationship that's not contractual, but is eternally and covenantally bound in such a way that he initiates our sanctification when we don't seem to appear to be the least bit concerned with it. And again and again, the hound of heaven that he is, he comes after us. He comes after us, he comes after us. And and maybe you're the woman and you're having to act more like the groom in this situation, but I want to speak specifically to some men this morning. Look at the Passion Week. Look at Holy Week as Jesus as a groom and what he is doing on behalf of a bride that doesn't seem to care. And let that be your model for redeeming your marriage. Look at it that way. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, claiming himself to be the king of the universe, certainly of the Jews and of all the people that would follow the king of the Jews. And Jesus is as calm under pressure as he can be, calm in ways that we wouldn't be as tender souls. And he doesn't just handle his own adrenaline, but as one pastor says, he's able to determine the outcome. And he acts wisely. He's a victim, to be sure, but he's a victim that is totally and utterly in control. There's a word for us with tender consciences there. He's a victim, but he's totally and utterly in control, moving purposefully and powerfully toward the mission that he planned with his father from the foundations of the world. And it's sovereignty in action. It's the most powerfully, powerful demonstration of controlled selflessness the world has ever seen. It's the most powerful demonstration of controlled selfless, selflessness the world has ever seen. And all the people listed need to hear this, this saving gospel of Jesus Christ listed in these narratives, these stories, that we're reading about this week. I want to conclude this sermon by looking at some texts that are related to Matthew chapter 21 and one that's even embedded in Matthew chapter 21. Consider first Psalm 118, 22 to 26. Twice referenced is this hallel, this praise psalm in Matthew 21. Once in the beginning and once in the end of Matthew 21. I think you'll notice how it's referenced in the beginning. I'll share for you how it's referenced in the end. Look, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So Jesus is rejected, and then he saves. Psalm 118 is a part of a core of psalms that were known as the praise psalms. Um, Hosanna means save. It comes to us straight from the Hebrew, Hosanna, Hosanna, and we sing Hosanna. What they were singing that in during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and particularly in light of Passover meal, what they were singing it in light of is they were singing praise to the God who brought them out of slavery from the coercive powers of Egypt and into the Promised Land. As long as that process was, and the many years spent in the desert, they saw God under the leadership of Moses as graciously saving them from their enslavement. Jesus comes to do the same, and in fact... When we read the Psalms, we should imagine Jesus seeing this psalm at the Last Supper, like Matthew twenty six thirty indicates, and we should imagine this psalm being quoted as central to understanding what Jesus' whole program is about. Psalm 118 frames our own exodus experience. And so he says, or they say rather, as he's riding in on a donkey, save us, we pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They're seeing Jesus as Savior coming in. They're seeing him as Lord, but they're seeing him probably as a political savior or some other kind of savior that's not a savior in the manner in which Jesus intended to save holistically, like we talked about from the start of this sermon. And the priests reference this psalm as well as the theme of the week. Look at Matthew chapter 21 verse 42 for that information and consider how it is in Matthew 21 42 that we see these that want to kill Jesus really misusing and misunderstanding Psalm 118. They say, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing its own fruits, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held them to be a prophet. Jesus is saying, you're quoting Psalm 118 and I want you to know it's more applicable than you could ever realize because the stone that the builders rejected that you rejected for building this house, this edifice of Jews and Gentiles in the faith, the stone that the builders rejected, you're rejecting it, it's become the cornerstone. You're just like your fathers that killed the prophets even though you've erected statues to say that you're not. You really are. You've done everything you can to fake yourself into thinking, you're not like those that murdered the prophets before me, but you are and you're gonna murder me too. And he's, he's preaching them. And I think sometimes we read these passages and we think oh, how hateful Jesus was to these people. How else would they be saved? I mean, some of the priests came to faith, we see in Acts chapter 6. We see that some of these people got saved in no small part than the means of the preaching of the hard truths to the hardest-headed. So let this hit you, hard-headed Listener. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You don't build a lasting edifice without Jesus. He saves to the uttermost. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus was rejected, and then he saved. He was rejected, and then he saved anyway. Consider how this last book of the Bible describes a perpetual second chance at Palm Sunday, where palm branches in hand, clothed in white robes, you as a believer get to cry out with a loud voice, with a much more full understanding, finally faithful, because he is faithful for you and will do it. And believer, I want you to only trust in his gospel, not your own, to get you to the imagery of this last day. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Take a fresh look at the head. Standing with palm branches in their hands before the throne of the Lamb on that great and faithful day. And they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation is the property of our God. It belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to the God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, this being John the Apostle, who in his old life wrote this, this letter on the Lord's Day. He said, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. How hard it's going to be on us, right? They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God. We sing before the throne of God above. That's a song we sing in church. Therefore, they're before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Listen, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Shepherd of the sheep. Strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. The sheep have been ingathered. And this shepherd will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Believer, put your faith in the Savior that is talked about in this Passion Week. You'll have more purpose and you'll have more assurance of eternal life than if you put your faith in yourself or some pseudo-savior. Let the familiarity of singing Hosanna, not breed contempt, but drive you to the scriptures that declare a Jesus that is Lord of every aspect of your life and in complete control of human history. His grace will see you all the way home. Let's pray. God, please help us. All our help comes from you. And I have become utterly convinced of my inability to save myself. As I want to preach a gospel that will save people because of your sovereign grace and not because of my ability to do good. Be pleased to redeem for yourself a people and to make some people aware of it right now through this service as we consider this fateful and wonderful week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.